I have April up here, not just to amen me while I'm preaching, um, but April is going to read our scripture passage this morning uh, from Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, your phone, tablet, please take those out and turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to wait an awkward second for everyone to get there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're funny. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked good and delicious. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man he said, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife, and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, and all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Thank you, April. 
It's good. It's good to hear the word uh, being read aloud and just to see it all together. One chapter read aloud. Every great story, I think throughout history, has, has basically the same elements to it, right? You know, books we read or TV shows or movies we watch, the same stories but different mixture of the same elements. For, for example, my family and I, uh, we live fairly close to the church and um, one evening, my, my wife was coming home from an event. I was home with the kids. And um, we have a security system. And it was turned off. While she was entering our house, she was getting her keys out. And there's a little key fob on there that has like an arm-disarm panic button. I accidentally pressed the panic button. Alarm went off in her house about you know, 9 o'clock at night. And uh, I got up, and I turned it off, got a phone call immediately from the security system and said, we got the panic alarm, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. They said, well, what's your passcode? We have a passcode for our security system here at church, as well as the one at home. And I just gave the church passcode to them. And they said, oh, that's great, okay, thank you very much, Goodbye. You know, there's, there's a beginning, there's a conflict, resolution, should have been the other story, right? Well, all of a sudden, 15 minutes later, doorbell rings, the police are at our home, and it wakes up our kids, like, what is going on? The police are here. And they said, well, somebody gave the wrong passcode, ma'am, are you okay? Like, thinking that something was happening in our home. And we said, no, we're fine, it's okay, I just messed up, okay? And they went away, and it was fine. Conflict resolution. I know the passwords now to the church and my house. Not the same. Some, some stories we know have some sort of twist in them, right? Or an element is missing that makes them interesting. My, my wife loves some older books. Uh, she loves mystery books. And so I always tease her when she finishes a book. She finished a book last night. Like, did the butler do it? I always think it's the butler. And it usually is. But last night it was not. But usually in stories we have this introduction. We have kind of a background of who the characters are. And then a, a conflict arises. Something happens between the characters. There's a resolution. And then a happily ever after. If, if Disney and movies have taught us anything, right? Happily ever after exists in, in fairy tales. The, uh, the prince comes, they have a beautiful home and kids and until the sequel comes, right? I mean, it's usually happily ever after. The Bible has often been called the greatest story ever told. And it has some of these very same elements that we find in just general stories in life. And I believe, and I hope you believe, this is not just some sort of fictional, made-up story, but it is actually true and it has deep meaning behind it. But we've been going through the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, talks about the very beginning, and for two chapters we've gotten kind of this intro. We've gotten the background, the, the, the main character. We've gotten, in the beginning, God. 
all-powerful, good, creates then everything, the world, planets, and people. And last week, look at chapter 2, where it kind of zooms in on God's creation, the first man and woman. And so we have the characters, God, humanity, and the world. And today, we're introduced to the conflict There's a quote that I'm sure you've heard. It says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And as much as this is a historical, happened many years ago story, unfortunately, I think we're going to find ourselves in this story because it keeps happening over and over again in our life. We keep doing the very same things in chapter 3 that... April read, I keep doing the same thing in my own life. And the question is, you know, where, where is our happy ending, our, our happily ever after? Where is our resolution? Have we, have we found it yet? One of the themes, maybe you heard this in chapter 3, is the word know, K-N-O-W, or, or knowing Um, In verse 5, the the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open, knowing good and evil. There's some sort of knowledge. And then in verse 7, it talks about their eyes being opened, and they knew that they were naked. So these these points we're going to talk about today, learning about chapter 3, all are on this idea of what can we learn, what wisdom, what can we know for our own life today? So the first thing we should know is this. Beware the temptation to twist God's word ever so slightly, even a little ways. Beware that temptation to twist God's word. We've been seeing for for two chapters now in Genesis 1 and 2 the importance of God's word. It begins with God, and then he speaks things into existence. He speaks the sun, speaks the moon, he speaks animals. Every time he speaks it, and it was so, and it happens. And then all of a sudden in chapter 2, it's not just him speaking things into existence, but he speaks to humanity. He gives a, a command. He says, You may surely eat of every tree, but do not eat of this one. Or in chapter 2 also, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And and this theme kind of goes on throughout Scripture, the significance of the very words of God. We, We take this whole book, this book of of, of letters, of, of history, of prophecies, to be more than just um, some things that we found that are good and wise, but they are the very words of, of God. That, as 2 Timothy talks about, the God-breathed words. Not that they have some sort of magical incantation power, but that they have significance and power in these Words. 
Remember again that the book of Genesis is, is given to Moses and the Israelites as they are escaping from this enslaved place of Egypt. And God will be speaking to them on the mountain, speaking about the, the Ten Commandments, how to live, who he is. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This thing is powerful and good, but there will be temptations in your life to doubt it, to change it, to misinterpret it. These are all things we're going to see that this serpent, this snake does with Adam and Eve. Now right away in chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character, Chapter 3, it says, the serpent, this, this snake that was more crafty than the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information right here in this chapter of who this is, what this is. We're, we're just told that it's, it's craftier, it's, it's wise somehow, smarter than the other creatures out there. Uh, we're told that it's just a beast. This is important that we're told that it's, it's, it's one of those beasts that's made by God. So this is not some sort of new character of a new God onto the scene like who's going to win, good versus evil. No, this is someone that's just been made by God. We know from the rest of the Bible that this serpent is Satan himself. This is the devil. He was an angel. Good at one point, but in his pride, thought that he could be like God, wanted to be God himself, and so was cast out of heaven. And now he is still alive, still roaming, attacking, tempting, trying to deceive. And so Satan is, is using this snake somehow to try to crack this relationship between humanity and God. And Satan's whole plan here through this snake is to trick Adam and Eve, to, to tempt them to doubt God and his words. That's the first thing we see is that he, he tempts them to doubt. Just this little bit of phrasing to doubt God, his character, and what he said. He begins this to the woman and says, did, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this may seem small to you, but in verse 1, notice how it's um, that the Lord God had made. But the serpent just says, did God actually say? Whenever you see the word Lord and every letter is capitalized, that's indication of the, the name Yahweh that God um, revealed to Moses. 
this idea of him being I am, him being present, being everywhere all the time, it's usually used when it's this kind of covenantal relationship idea of God. And so that is how God is presented all throughout chapter 2. If you go back, it's always Lord God, Lord God. But right away, Satan says, you know, this, this, this uh, God, this so-called God that you, you've had, um, did, he, did he really say that? Did he actually say, don't eat anything? Jump back with me at chapter 2 real quick, because this is going to be really important for us. Chapter 2, verse 16. This is the command that God gives to Adam first. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. So, so Satan just kind of casts this doubt. Did he really say this? And he changes a little bit of what God actually said, right? Satan says, you shall not eat of any tree, but God said you may surely eat of any tree. He's just kind of casting doubt on God's, his words. Did he say that? Is he really that good? I mean, now, doubt can, can be okay. It can lead to, to searching, um, running after, to turning toward God, right? But when it, it creeps in and begins to kind of crack our relationship with God and cause anger and frustration, and, and distance ourselves from actually who God is and his character, then, then there's some real trouble here. This little inch-by-inch inch crack that Satan is trying to do. Well, the woman, Eve, responds. And you would have thought the first thing that Eve would have said or done is, Ah! There's a talking snake! And run away, Right? That's what I would have done. I don't know. I mean, that's part of his craftiness. Maybe there were other talking animals. I don't know. But she, she lingers and stays around to kind of talk with this thing who's doubting God. Eve takes the bait, as we so often do, right? And, and look then at what she does to God's word. She begins to twist it. She begins to remove things and add things and soften things from what God actually said. First, she, she responds back and she, she removes something. Verse 16 from chapter 2 talked about you may surely eat of every tree. Well, she leaves out every tree. She just kind of says you can eat of the trees. There's just, I know that's small, it's a little bit, but as, as this pastor Kent Hughes says, her inexact, unenthusiastic rendition of God's word discounted his generosity. Yeah, it's really not every tree he gave to us. It's, he's not that generous or, or that good. It is so 
dangerous to begin to kind of take things out of what God said to say, I don't like that, not this one, um, just these things here. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers of this country, he created a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth about 1820. And he didn't have all of our modern copy and paste computer programs, but he took a, a razor blade and took out the things of the New Testament especially about Jesus that he, he didn't like. He would cut out things like uh, the miracles of Jesus, anything about that he was divine, uh, his resurrection, cut it out, pasted it back together to make up his own book of what he thought was the real Jesus. He, he was a naturalist, didn't believe in the supernatural, and so anything supernatural in the Bible had to go, okay, I'll just make my own Bible. In the end, you end up worshiping a different God than who God actually is. But not only that, but Eve, she's taking a word away, but she's also adding something in, right? She says, uh, well, yeah, we can, we can you know, eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden, but uh, God said you can't even touch it. That's, that's not what God said. It's stricter than what God said. This was the danger of the Pharisees when Jesus came on the scene, that they had all these rules, all these laws kind of leading up to that it was, it was more important about following all the rules and laws and not even the relationship that they had with God. When church, when anything comes about just the rules, all the things that you do ahead of time to get to God, it's not about who God actually is. And then she even, she... She softens, this is again a small little change to us maybe, but she softens and, and she goes from uh, God saying, you will surely die to um, blessed, blessed you will die. It's this, you know, exact, it will happen, definite, you will die to her changing to a maybe, you know, we're afraid maybe it's possible we might die you know, we begin to soften God's word because we just don't want to talk about things like judgment or hell. That is dangerous. And those, this, I think, emboldens the serpent, emboldens Satan to then begin to go even further. And then he begins to just tempt Eve with this direct contradiction to what God said. He just says, he didn't say that. You won't really die. I mean, God, God knows. He's God. He knows these things. If you do that, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. You're not going to die. There's this hint of, of truth that we'll see here that when they do disobey, they don't die right then, right? So he... There's a hint of truth. That's what always Satan does. He takes some little hint kernel of truth and twists it and takes it. But there's this offer that he's giving them that you will be like God. You will be able to have the rules. You can set what is right and wrong. You can make up your own way. So he begins to consider this. She looks at this tree and this fruit and I mean it looks good it's a delight to the eyes it looks like it's good for food 
which we, we learn in chapter 2 that every tree of the garden is described the same way, that it's good for food, looks good, but she's just, she's considering it, she's looking at it, and she takes some, she eats it, and then this very important little line in verse 6, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We find out that Adam is there the entire time just sitting around kind of watching this, letting this go on, watches Eve take some, takes some himself. He should have stepped in. He should have done something to, to lead, to help. Did he not really like pass on the correct commandments? Did Eve know for sure? What was he doing there? But this is the temptation we will all run into in our life temptation to resist God's word, to change it, to adapt it, to want to be like God ourselves. And it is so important for us to know what this thing actually says. The second thing that we should know is that God knows your sin. There is no place we can run to or hide that God is not already there or, or knows about. God knows about everything. He knows about what you did yesterday, about 10 years ago, 15, 50 years ago. He knows about everything. Psalm 139 says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where, where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your hand shall hold me. And he just goes on and on about how God is everywhere. You can't run to Canada or Mexico or to the ocean or Europe, wherever you want to run to. You can't escape from God and what he knows and where he is. Now, Adam and Eve immediately realize something is different. They, they know something, it says. Their eyes are open. They know that they are naked. This great moment that we had at the end of chapter 2 of this marriage ceremony, they're naked and they're unashamed. All of a sudden, their eyes are open and they are ashamed. They are naked and so they quickly cover themselves up and, and they begin to hide. Hiding from each other and hiding from God. Because this is what sin does to us. It makes us ashamed, guilty, and want to hide. And then in verse 8, we're back to Lord God. The Lord God is walking in the garden. <laughs> I mean, it's just a sweet picture of before the fall that he was walking with them and talking with them and had relationship with them. But 
he's walking in the cool of the day and he's looking for Adam and Eve and they are hiding. I don't think this is God being confused or not knowing where they really are. It's kind of, I think, from Adam and Eve's perspective of God looking for them. He knows everything. It's this comforting and terrifying thought all at once. He knows your hurts, your anxieties. He knows your deepest pains and cares for you, but he knows your deepest, darkest secrets that only you think you know. He calls out to Adam, where are you? And Adam's response is so telling. He says, I heard you, I was afraid, I was naked, and I I hid myself. I I didn't realize this last week that, um, that maybe you've heard of the the, the TV show, have you heard the TV show Naked and Afraid? Anybody heard or anybody watched the show Naked and Afraid? You guys are embarrassed. Keep your hands up, I need to write your names down. There's a TV show called Naked and Afraid where they, they kind of like try to enact almost like this whole story. They take two people, a man and a woman, take all their clothes, put them in the wilderness, and uh, tell them to go survive. That's, I think, where they got the name of this show from is this verse 10. They're afraid, they're naked, and they hid themselves. But, but in the TV show, it's the exact opposite. They're not hiding themselves anymore. They're on TV. They're out there, that's how different our culture has gotten. So God says, you know, who, who told you you were naked? Did you disobey my command? Now, it's not till chapter 4 we're going to see this word sin finally pop up. But this is exactly what he's talking about. Chapter 4, when, when God comes to Cain, Cain is angry, as we're going to see next week at his brother. God says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is is contrary to be careful about it. This is now what we see from Genesis 3 all the way up to now. Sin. And its really basic idea is is that disobeying God's command or it's it's missing the, the mark. If I were to, you know, go out hunting with my bow and I'm trying to like shoot that clock way back there. I know you hunters are like, yes, that's perfect form that he has. And I were to shoot that clock and just totally miss it. I've missed the mark of where I'm going. That's the idea of what sin is. You're missing way off from what you're supposed to hit. God's perfect law, his idea for how we should live, that is what he wants. Sin is going away from that, off from that. So when he says, have you disobeyed my one command? doesn't matter how you get there from doubting a little bit to removing things or adding things or it all ends in this same sin that God knows about. And then what sin does, it complicates everything and it tends to then multiply into more and more sin, right? As God comes and says, what have you done? Have you done this, Adam? Did you, did you disobey me? What does Adam do? Adam says, well, that, that woman that you, you gave me, 
Uh, she gave me the fruit, and, I, and then I ate it. <laughs> he doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't just say, I did it. But he blames her, blames God, blames her again, and then gets to himself, right? This is what sin does. It, it just begins to snowball and multiply that it begins to wreck our life bigger. And then, so God goes to the woman and says, okay, Eve, what, what, did, what did you do? What happened? The serpent, he's the one, he deceived me, and, the, and then I ate it, right? It wasn't, it wasn't me. I mean, it, it couldn't be. I, I'm not the one to blame. I mean, this is what we still do in this world. Right? We blame shift, and, and it's not, not me. The problem is, and I think we've all learned this by now, is that there are consequences. Number three, understand that there are consequences for your sin. Now, sin may have immediate consequences, it may be long-term. It, it may be just the inner effect of guilt or, or shame or, or it may ruin a relationship. Even if you get away with something, there are still consequences. In our story in Genesis 3, God first looks to the serpent. He's going to look to the serpent, to the woman and then to the man. In a similar way in, in Genesis 1, how he blessed three things, now there are three curses that come out, consequences. He says to the serpent in verse 14, Cursed are you above all the livestock. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. This seems to be some sort of curse consequence to that animal specifically that Satan used, that he will be degraded by the things he eats, by the way he goes. And even beyond that one serpent's life, um, dislike between snake and woman. Maybe this is why people are afraid of snakes. I don't know. But there's something more than that goes on about their offspring and a bruising of the head and bruising of the heel. But, but then to the woman, he looks at her and says, two things that will be important for, for years to come giving birth and, and marriage will be difficult. There will be pain in childbirth. There will be this hard relationship between you and your husband, this desire maybe to control or lead, um, but he will rule over you and, and, and it just goes negative and is bad. This, these two relationships here are painful. They will be painful. This is the consequence. And then for Adam, he says, cursed is the ground. The, the, the work you will do will be painful. You will sweat. There will be 
thorns and thistles and all these things will be hard now for you. And because you came from dust, you will go back to dust. You will die at some point. And, and that's not it. He sends them out of this place, kicked out of the garden. They're driven out. A flaming sword with an angel, a cherubim, that's what it is, is guarding the way so they cannot get back in. Sin now infects us. We, we choose to sin, but we come out born sinful, wanting it. All of our relationships are broken with ourselves, how we view ourselves, with each other, marriages, friendships, with our kids, with the creation itself has been cursed. Our relationship with God is broken. And death now enters in. Yes, they didn't die right then, but they will die eventually, as we'll see. Adam and Eve will pass away, but they have this spiritual death, infection of sin. But there's, there's some sort of grace that is talked about here, some sort of kindness that God offers. Even though the way back into this heavenly place is barred, they can't get in, they're stuck out, there's, there's punishment, there's this little hint here. Even in verse 21, it talks about God caring for them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There's this little hint of the first sacrifice of something else to protect, to cover somebody else. See, the last thing I want you to know, to trust in, to believe in, is to believe in the promises of Jesus. Because if we were to just end here, or really just kind of read on in Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, all you would see is that sin keeps getting worse and worse. They keep looking for who's going to save us. Well, maybe it'll be, uh, the, you know, Adam and Eve's son, Cain. Now, that's not going to work out. Maybe it'll be Noah. It's, that's not going to work out. I mean, sin just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. As we see it even today, worse and multiplying. But God gives us this first little hint that he has a plan and that promise is in Jesus Christ. As I read even kind of quickly and looked over in verse 15, this is what people call the first little hint of the gospel. That as he says to the serpent, as he says to Satan himself, your future offspring, you, uh, yeah, your heel, you will bruise the, the heel of the woman's offspring and he will crush your head. This is this little hint, this little taste that Jesus is coming. Jesus is the one to be the snake crusher, to be the sin slayer, to be the death destroyer in this life. All these things that have now been introduced, Satan, death, sin, Jesus comes to defeat. And it's in this strange way, right? He doesn't come with a, a horse and a battle and, and come to defeat, and he comes on a cross. His heel was bruised in a sense, but he will crush 
Satan's head. And one day, as, as Paul says in Romans 16, 20, one day Satan will be crushed forever. The God of peace, he says in Romans 16, 20, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this is the hope that we have. If you find yourself this morning stuck in that same cycle of temptation and guilt, and I know my sin and I can't do anything about it, this is the hope that is offered to you. This is the the thing we spoke about at communion, that Jesus came to crush that cycle in your life, to give you new life, give you eternal life, to take the wages of sin on himself. And that is yours to receive today. And so I'm going to pray that you receive that. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and we'll take our offering. So would you pray with me? God, as we look to you and read about temptation and sin and these very same things that happen in our own life, I know in my own life that I I can't stop it. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop thinking negative, harmful, bad things. I can't stop doing these things. And God, it's only by your power, only by the, the power that's given through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit inside of us, that we can be free from that. And so, God, we praise you and thank you that you sent Jesus to be the snake crusher. And we come to fall at our knees and worship you because of your goodness and plan in our life. We praise you, God, that you did more than we could imagine. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.